We are going to begin a, uh, a new study in the book of Acts. And uh, I, I think I'll tell you right up front, we're not going to dive in and we're not going to take every little verse apart. I know, buddy, I know, I know. We're kind of on a time schedule. So, so we are going to get a, a really good overview of, of Acts. Um, that is, if I can. My wife says, you won't, Jeff, you won't be able to to take big chunks without diving in. And I, it is going to be a discipline for me, for sure, because I, I like to give all the little details. But, but here's, here's why I think it's important for us to start Acts. As a church, I, I think this is a vital time in the life of our church. I, uh, you, you know, and some of you are, are uh, hearing changes in the wind or in the air and, and changes a-blowing or something anyway. Um, and, and, and some of you are going, what is going on? And I think Acts will help us find the mind of Christ. I think Acts will help us understand maybe what it is we want to be doing as a church. Maybe not the specifics, but certainly it will give us this picture of the first church. And it was a church, as we will see, that was on mission but it was on mission in the power of the Holy Spirit. And yes, we are, as a conservative Baptist church, going to talk about the Holy Spirit. Okay? So we are, because that's where the power is in Acts. And I think so many times we miss out because we don't, we don't talk about the Holy Spirit enough. And so we're going to see that Acts is all about the Holy Spirit and His work in the life of the first church, in the life of the uh, uh, first missionaries that were sent out, and, and, and this whole idea of a church on mission. So my prayer as we go into this is that we will be that church on mission. And it might look a little differently for us here in Jefferson County. But I believe this wholeheartedly, that God has placed this church family here for a reason. We are in Jefferson County, in Madras, Oregon. We are here for a purpose. We have a mission. And, and guess what? As long as Christ remains and is not coming back, we are to fulfill that mission. And He's not through with us yet. Okay? So... Even though there's some things that are changing at our church, please know we hold the Word of God and its, uh, its commands and imperatives as priority. Um, we're just saying, what does that look like in this day and in this culture in which we live? So we're going to look at Acts. Let's, let's talk about some introductory remarks. Look with me at verses 1 through 3. First of all, we have here an introduction in these first three verses, and we, we will come to find the author, we'll come to find the recipient, and we'll come to find the purpose in these first three verses. So look at what it says. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, what, what the author is doing here is he's summing up the first book. He says, I've already written to you. And you already know that what book that is, right? That is the Gospel of Luke, the third gospel that we have in our New Testament. So we come to recognize that Luke is the author here. 
Luke is the one who writes this. In Luke chapter 1, he writes to Theophilus, and he's given him a detailed account of the, of the, of the uh, uh, workings of Jesus up until the point where he ascended. And, and, and so he starts this off just saying, Hey, Theophilus, this is part two. Pay attention. You've already read part one in the Gospel of Luke. Now this is part two. So, so Luke is the author. Well, who is Luke? Well, that's a really good question. Not much is said about him in the Bible, although we do know a few things. We know that he accompanied Paul at some points on his missionary journeys. And we'll note that in Acts, especially when you get to chapter 16, all of a sudden it goes from they did this and they did that to all of a sudden we did this and we went here and we did that, which is those points in the, in the book where Luke was with the Apostle Paul. So he gets a lot of his information about Jesus in the Gospel of Luke and here through the Apostle Paul. So we can come to rely upon what he has said. We also know that he was a physician. In fact, Paul calls him the beloved physician in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 14. He is the beloved physician. So he's this doctor, which I think is pretty cool. And I think we'll see even today how that plays out, and, and as a doctor, what he includes and what he uh, is, is interested in. So we, we come to understand that Luke is the author, and it's written to Theophilus. Well, if we know only that much about Luke, we know even less about Theophilus. We do not know much about him at all, except for in, in the Gospel of Luke, as, as uh, Luke addresses him, he calls him most excellent Theophilus which perhaps means that he was some sort of Roman official. That was a title that was given to a, a Roman official. But it could also be that he was just showing respect and honor to this man by calling him that, which would not have been uncommon as well. So Theophilus could either be a new believer who is wanting to learn more about Jesus and what had happened uh, after he ascended to the right hand of the Father, or he could have been a pre-believer, and, and, and Luke is writing to him, trying to share with him the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, so that he might come to saving faith. Sure, either one of those could work, but we're not absolutely positive which it is. But we do know the purpose of the book, because in Luke chapter 1, uh, he writes to most ex excellent Theophilus, and he writes to, them, to him that he may know certainty, or that he may have certainty concerning the things that he has been taught. That's Luke chapter 1, verse 4. Luke chapter 1, verse 4. So Luke is writing to Theophilus, so Theophilus can know without any doubt what happened with Jesus Christ and what has happened in the church since. So again, <clears throat> excuse me, as, as I would encourage us, as we look through this part two, book two of Luke's writings, we're going to come to discover the church on mission in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's kind of the, the theme, it's kind of the main idea of the whole book, and we're going to see how verse eight of chapter one is the, is the uh, decisive verse in, in uh, uh, outlining this book. It starts in Jerusalem and then goes out into Judea and Samaria and then to the end of the earth. And, and we see those divisions in the book itself. We'll see things such as that. But I, again, want to tell you that I, I believe that we as a church are in a time of transformation and waiting. 
that we are wanting to seek the Lord for His direction for this church family. That we are wanting Him to to help us be as effective as we possibly can in the culture in which we live to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't you want to be effective for Him? I hope so. So that's why you might feel like, oh my goodness, we're in this transition, we're in this change, and and who knows, things may settle the way they've been. But maybe we're going to find we're going to have more effectiveness with the gospel of Jesus Christ in this culture in which we live in doing it maybe even a, a new way. I know that's scary. I really understand that. So I think it's good for us to look at these things in the, in the, in the book of Acts because in Acts we, have, we, we understand where the power is. It's not in us. Again, it's in the Holy Spirit. We understand that God was doing something new. And I'm not saying He's doing something new here like He did in Acts. Definitely not saying that. But perhaps He is calling us to something a little bit different. Okay? So this is an important book. And I, and, I, and I want us to see in this first chapter, more even specifically, where we are at. So would you bow with me in prayer? That's kind of been a long introduction just to the book itself, and now I want to get into chapter 1. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you. Thank you that the power of the Holy Spirit that worked and moved among the first church is the same power that works and moves here today. Father, I thank you that by your word you reveal that every born-again believer, everyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And he is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. And so, Lord, we are so grateful that you have not left us to our own strength, to our own might, to our own wisdom, but you have provided for us the Holy Spirit. And I pray, Father, as we open up your word, as we look at Acts chapter 1 this morning, that your Holy Spirit would be working in our hearts, that we would be willing to, even this morning, wait upon you. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. As we get into the first chapter in the the verses 4 through 26, remember I told you we're going to take a big chunk at a time, okay? So I'm not going to dive in. And if I dive in, say, wait, wait, wait. We don't have enough time. We're going to cover these 26 verses. (laughs) I like you, buddy. Man, I appreciate buddy. Anyway, um, what we find in chapter 1 is this whole idea of waiting. Of waiting. And what I'd like to say to start our time off is this, that, that... Often, Jesus asks his followers to wait on him. Why do I say that? Verse 4. And while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, look at this, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus' instruction is to wait. Now, wait for what? Exactly. Wait for what? The disciples, the apostles, they had no understanding of what that all meant. Jesus explained, you need to wait because there's this moment, and it was soon, that he would be taken up into heaven. 
And the scripture says he's right now at the right hand of the Father, who, uh, the throne of the Father. He's there. And, and, and these apostles had 40 days with Jesus from the time he resurrected from the dead to the time that he was ascended to the right hand of the Father. And in those 40 days, the scripture says he taught them all about the kingdom of God. He taught them about the kingdom of God, but he also gave them this major instruction. He said, wait! That's awkward, isn't it? I'm sitting here going, Jeff, say something. Say something. That was too long of a wait. But, but, but Jesus tells them, you wait. Don't do anything. Don't go anywhere. You stay right here in Jerusalem, and you wait. Now wait for what? Well, Jesus gave them this understanding. You were uh, uh, John baptized with water, but you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, we understand perhaps what that means. But the apostles had no clue. They'd never gone through that before. They'd never experienced that before. They'd never understood what it means. So in their brains, Jesus said to wait for something. They didn't know what that something was. They they were waiting. He said, don't go anywhere. Don't do anything. Don't say anything. You just stay in this city in Jerusalem and, and wait. He asks them to wait. And you know... There are times in our own lives that Jesus might ask us to wait. I was thinking of it in terms of an illustration. My wife has a cat. Notice I said, my wife has a cat. That cat basically wants nothing to do with me. And that's okay. <laughs> I mean, it's a wonderful cat. But, but there, we have this cat. And, and for Mother's Day, Mona was given by one of the sweet kids of ours, a kitty door, okay? So that cat has the the door that comes through the wall, so it can come inside and go outside, and there's just this magnetic flap, you know, you've seen those things where dogs are, this is a cat one, or maybe it's a dog one, but the cat uses, I don't know. Anyway, so it's this door that the cat can go in and out. Well, what we found is that that darn cat in the middle of the night likes to come in and announce that he is here. Meow! 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 And I get woken up, and a lot of times I can't get back to sleep. And I, and I love that cat. But with that door, in the kit came this plastic thing that, that snaps over that door so that that doesn't work, you know? And so there are nights when we put that on. I want a good night's sleep, so that's going to go on there. And that cat, I just envisioned that cat trying to get in and bumping his nose up against that door. But I, I bring that up because I think that's sometimes what it feels like in our own life. We, we think we should be going through this door, and we try to go through that door, and we, we find our nose a little flatter because of it. So we think, well, let's go in this one, and, and all of a sudden we bump up against something, and, and we're over here, and all of a sudden we bump, and, and, and pretty soon we just don't know what to do. And Jesus has us in a waiting pattern. He's just saying, wait, don't go here, don't go there, don't do this, don't do that. Just, I want you to wait for me right now. See, and it might be a period in your life where you're seeking his direction for you. 
I need a job, or, or I need to make a decision about a relationship I'm in, or I, 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 need, to, I, I need to find out what I'm going to do with my money or lack thereof. And I've got to figure out all these things, and you're not getting any answers. And it seems like Jesus is just saying, wait, just wait. Or maybe you find yourself in the midst of a hard situation. It's a struggle you're going through. Maybe it's a, a relational issue or a financial issue, and, and you're wanting to be healed and come out of this hardship, but, but all you hear from the Lord is, just, just wait. I'll take care of it, but just, just wait. I don't know what your thing is or what God is doing in your life, and, and maybe He's asking you to wait today. But the bottom line truth is we don't like to wait as Americans, do we? We don't like to wait. We've got instant this, fast that, quick this. We want everything done right now. We don't want to wait. And there's many reasons why. I was thinking about this. Have you ever thought about this? Our culture tells us that it's not a good thing to wait, right? We, we want it done now, right? We, we want it done now. If, if it's going to happen, we want it done now. We don't want to have to wait. We, uh, we think this idea, waiting is a waste of time. I don't know how many times I've heard this quote, time is money, time is money, time is money. And pretty soon you start thinking, oh, I can't sit still. I got to get doing something with this time. After all, time is money. I don't know exactly what that means, but time is money, right? We, we, we think that waiting is a waste of time. My dad, when we were on vacation, he used to always say this, every minute's a mile. I'm serious. Our kids even will, will joke about that. That's what my dad used to say. when I mean, we're on vacation. We're supposed to relax. But my dad's going, every minute's a mile. Come on, get in the car. We just wasted a mile. We could have been a mile down the road. Every minute's a mile. So we, don't, we get this mind mentality that waiting is a huge waste of time. We, we, we think that those who wait miss out. After all, the early bird catches the worm, right? If you wait, you're going to miss out on the worm, right? So we get this mentality that waiting is so unproductive. You want me to wait? Come on! There's things got to get done. We got to do it yesterday. Come on. What do you mean, wait? But, dear church, Jesus tells his apostles don't do anything, just wait. Why? Because with Jesus, waiting is always productive. Waiting on Jesus is always productive. And what I want us to see in this whole chapter is how productive waiting on Jesus was for the apostles so that you and I will come to understand how productive it is for us when we wait upon him. So I'm going to talk about four products of waiting on Jesus. If we are going to wait on Jesus individually and as a church, what are the products of that? What, what does that produce in us individually or us as a church? And, and I'm excited about sharing this because I think it's where we're at. Waiting on Jesus is always productive. And you may say, how so? Well, I say, let's look at verse 6. First of all, they went, or they had come together, and they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but notice the beginning of verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. 
Let me say the first one, the first product. Waiting on Jesus releases the Holy Spirit's power in our life. Waiting on Jesus releases the Holy Spirit's power in our life. Now let me stop and say this. I think in my own life, and probably in yours at least at some points, we have moved ahead of God in our life. We've not wanted to wait, and we've tried to kick that door open, even though it seemed closed. We kicked and kicked and fought and screamed and, and, until we finally got our way, and then we've realized, oops, uh-oh, now what? See, one of the things about moving out uh, in our own strength and not waiting means that we find ourselves in positions that we really don't want to be in. But if we wait, that releases the Holy Spirit's power. We don't have to kick those doors down. He does what he needs to do. And we'll see that in Acts chapter 2. And again, the apostles didn't recognize or understand this completely, but what I'm trying to say is, if we move out in our own wisdom, our own strength, our own will, our own desires, our own ambitions, then we'll find ourselves in spots that we shouldn't be in. But when we wait on the Lord, the Holy Spirit is the one that empowers us. He's the one that leads. Jesus says, listen, you wait, but there's coming a time that you won't need to wait anymore because you're going to receive power. And again, dear church, it's the power that raised Christ from the dead. That's what Paul says in Romans. The Holy Spirit who indwells every believer is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. I got to tell you, that's powerful. Amen? So when we wait on the Lord, it releases the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. We're not doing it in our own strength, but all of a sudden He's doing it, and we can follow and we can walk through those open doors as though they weren't closed at all ever before. See, waiting on the Lord releases the power of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 40, 31. You got it memorized? They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings of eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not be faint. It's the idea of strength, but it comes as we wait on the Lord. That's the first product of waiting on the Lord. But the second product is also found in verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Second thing that happens when we wait on the Lord is the divine mission is revealed to us. Waiting on Jesus reveals our divine mission. What is it that God wants us to do? See, Jesus tells them, and what I love is this, and I want to be careful here because studying the Bible is always good. So don't hear me say, don't study the Bible. But what's interesting to me is the disciples want to ask Jesus the time. Lord, when are you going to restore the kingdom of heaven? When are you going to restore Israel to its proper place as ruler over all these other nations? When are you going to, is now the time? And Jesus says, eh, 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 that's not your mission. That's not your purpose. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons, Jesus says. You don't need to worry about that. Don't, don't concern yourself with that. Why? Because I'm going to give you a mission. I'm going to give you a purpose. Here's your reason for existing. 
You're going to be my witnesses. Whoa. Your witness? That means, you know what a witness is? Somebody that testifies about somebody else, right? That's a witness. And you get to testify about Jesus. And he says, this is your purpose. This is your mission. And here's the other thing. It's going to start small. It's going to start in Jerusalem. But you're going to find that Jerusalem won't contain it. So you've got to go out to Judea and Samaria. And you're going to find that that's not going to contain it. So eventually it's going to go out to the ends of the earth. You're going to be my witnesses all across the world. So he gives them this mission. You're going to be my witnesses. I would submit to you that as we wait upon the Lord, both individually and as a church family, his divine mission becomes more and more focused in our minds and in our hearts. Sometimes we need that time to recognize what has he called me to? How has he equipped me? What are my spiritual gifts? Where should I be focusing my time? And then as a church, what has God done in bringing us together? Who are we as a church? What are our strengths as a church? Where do we need to go and where, thing, where, where do we not need to go? See, that mission becomes more and more clear as we spend time waiting on the Lord. And then, then if that's not incentive enough, Jesus goes on. Verse 9, it says, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he, lifted up, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into, the heaven, or into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. There's incentive there to fulfill that mission. Hey, guess what? These angels are saying. Guess what? This Jesus who gave you this mission, he's going to use you, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of the age, to the ends of the world. He's going to use you, and guess what? He's coming back. Now, if you've ever worked for somebody and they were gone for a while, but you knew they were coming back, you, were, you, you didn't want to get very lax, right? You, you didn't want to stand around with your hands in your pocket and just chat because you never knew when they were coming back. That's the incentive here. Jesus says, I've got a mission for you. And guess what? I'm coming back. So keep after it. Get, go. Go, get. Go, get. Get, go, go, get. Uh, whatever. You know what I mean. Okay, so Jesus gives them this divine mission and gives them this incentive. I'm coming back the same way I was lifted up. That's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. He's going to come in the clouds. Those of us who are followers of Jesus, who have put our faith and trust in him, will meet him in the clouds, will be caught up, will be resurrected, will be raptured with Jesus So he's coming again. This is a promise. So mission is important. The incentive is he's coming again. So we've looked at two two, uh, results, two, two products of waiting on the Lord. First, it releases the power of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, helps us to realize our divine mission. But thirdly, and I love this, waiting on Jesus makes prayer the priority. I'm going to say that again. Waiting on Jesus makes prayer the priority. Church, when we don't wait on Jesus, when we think we have all the answers, we feel no need to pray unless we're in trouble, right? Unless we're in trouble, then we pray, Oh God, get me out of this. Oh God, help me with my money. Oh God, my toe is stubbed and it hurts. 
right? Then we pray. But see, when we are in a time of waiting on the Lord, prayer becomes huge. Notice what happens, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. That's after Jesus ascended, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away, which is about a half a mile. Verse 13. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord, notice, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And in fact, we come to recognize that this was an ongoing prayer meeting. They were waiting on the Lord. They didn't know what else to do. They couldn't do anything else, so they decided, let's pray. Isn't that sad? Because that's typically the way it goes for us. We'll try everything else, and when nothing works, oh, we should probably pray. My dad used to say also, since I'm thinking about my dad and his quotes, my dad used to say, when all else fails, read the instructions. That's kind of what we do. When all else fails, pray. See, and when you're in a season of waiting, where every door you come up against gives you a flat nose, you have nothing else to do but pray. Prayer becomes the priority. These people had a prayer meeting, and I believe it was constant. It was every day. It wasn't just once a week. I don't believe it was just for an hour, and we set our clocks. Okay, we're done praying. Let's get out of here. No, it was much more priority than that. It was much more intense. They devoted, the Scripture says, themselves to prayer. And notice how big it was. Actually, you see that on down in verse 5 or excuse me, 15, there were 120 people continually coming together. You know what happens when we call a prayer meeting here? Seven, eight. Man, we're doing really good if 12 show up. But see, when you're waiting on the Lord, when you're allowing Him by His power, the power of the Holy Spirit, to reveal to you mission, and then to open those doors for that mission, then you recognize how important prayer is. And you pray. Not just in the bad times, but even in the good times. And I want to challenge us a little bit, and I've done this before, and I have to say this. One of my pet peeves about our prayer meetings is this. We often pray for the hurts of this person or the financial woes of that person, or so-and-so had a, a whatever a corn on their toe, or whatever it might be. And we're quick to pray for those things. And please hear me, we need to pray for one another. I'm not saying don't do that. But that becomes the focus of our prayer meeting. Let me ask you, do you think that's what they prayed for here? I don't think so. I think they were on their knees pleading for God's direction. Oh God, we can't do anything apart from you. We are desperate, desperate, desperate for you. We don't know what to do. Our leader has gone up with with you. He's with you. He's gone. He's not here. He told us to wait. We're not even exactly sure what we're waiting for. Lord, we need you. We're desperate for you. Please help us so that we know how to be on this mission that you've called us to. This is huge. We can't even imagine what this all means. We don't understand 
understand it. We recognize how big this task is. Again, Lord, we need you. It's all about you. It's not about my stubbed toe. It's about you. Don't you think? I'm just guessing because Scripture doesn't really say, but I can only imagine in that critical time where they're waiting, they're pleading for the Lord's direction. They're asking for more of Him in their life. That's what's priority. And so this prayer becomes huge in their lives. 120 of them gathered constantly. They were devoted to it. And by the way, let me give you options to pray. We have several options in our church to pray. Sunday mornings, 9 o'clock, in my office, there's a group that meets there and prays the whole hour from 9 to 10. Join us. Tuesday nights at 6 o'clock, there's a group that meets downstairs in the library to pray. Join them. On Friday afternoons at Patty Zachary's house at 2 o'clock, there's a group that, are, that gets together and pray. Join them and pray. On Thursday mornings, early, 6 a.m., there's a group of guys that I get to pray with, and we pray. We pray the Scriptures. We seek the Lord. And I can tell you there are many people in this church family that are praying for one thing. You know what it is? Revival. I've heard it more and more. Revival. Join us in praying for revival. Yes, we need to pray for one another and the hurts and stuff we're going through, but I would submit to you that even more important, let's pray for revival in this church, in this community, in this state, in this nation, in this world. Let's pray for revival. See, when we wait upon the Lord, prayer becomes priority. We recognize how important it is. Have I harped enough on that? Okay, finally, let's go on. The final thing is this. When we wait upon the Lord, people are placed into positions. Waiting on the Lord places people in positions. Did you hear that? Now, let me start off by saying this. Before we read the rest of the chapter, I want to say this. You know, there is this huge burden constantly on the pastor and on the elders and on the leaders to get people in positions. There is a constant burden. We need somebody to do this. We need somebody in Sunday school. We need somebody in children's church. We need somebody over here. We need somebody to teach a small group. We need somebody to be in Awana. We need somebody to work with our teens. We need somebody. And there's this constant, constant burden of getting people in place. But you know what? As we wait on the Lord, He puts them in place. Notice what it says here. Notice verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. And then verse 18 through uh, verse 19 is this parenthetical uh, understanding. And this is where Dr. Luke is Dr. Luke. I love it because he's explaining the physical nature of Judas's death. And it's not very, uh, it's not very G-rated. Notice what he says. Now this man acquired a field, this is verse 18, with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. Spoken like a doctor, right? He's interested in the intestines. He's interested in these things. I don't want to hear about them. 
But he describes it, verse 19, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language Akeldma, which is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Now, stop right there, because I need to explain some things. What he is doing is he's looking at the Psalms. He's saying this is prophetic. We knew Judas had to be one of the disciples. He had to be in that position to betray the Lord. It had to come about. It was, it was prophetic. But also prophetic is that he becomes, uh, his, his position uh, becomes filled by somebody else. And so they put these, they're going to put two men. But, but what you'll see is the requirements of an apostle. And I don't have time because this could be a whole other sermon because some, some denominations have apostle this and apostle that and they talk about apostles. But the true apostle The true biblical definition of an apostle is given for us right here. One, they were under the physical ministry of Jesus Christ. So they say, let us look for men who were from the time of Jesus' baptism to the time that he ascended were with him. They saw him face to face. They were eyewitnesses of him. So let us, that's an apostle, somebody who is an eyewitness. Therefore, in that definition, in the true sense of the word, there is no more office of apostle unless they've lived for a very long, long, they must be like over 2,000 years old because they would have had to see Jesus face to face, sat under his teaching. But also he says they are the ones who are a witness of his resurrection. So the big thing in being an apostle was not only that they sat under his teaching, but they saw the resurrected Jesus. So they're witnesses to his resurrection. He is alive. I saw him face to face, okay? That's the definition of an apostle. And so what do they do? They say, we need somebody. So verse 23, and they put forward two Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So they replaced him. So what I'm saying to you today is they prayed, they cast lots. Now, this is, not a, this is not an encouragement for you to go gamble, okay? That's not what this is. This was honestly before they had the whole completed word of God in the Bible. This is how they determined God's will. And they prayed over it. They prayed over it, and you say, you see what they said. Lord, you know hearts. We've got two men here that fill this, this, this the requirements, two men. And, and so you know their hearts. Which one should we choose? And they cast lots, which were stones with some sort of markings on them that gave them an understanding which one. And the lot fell to Matthias, and he took Judas's spot and became numbered as one of the 12 apostles. But here's the point I'm trying to make. 
God is the one who directed it. God is the one that put him in place. Yes, they worked, they looked for qualifications, but it was God who ultimately revealed to the apostles who should take Judas's spot. I want to say to you, when we wait upon the Lord, God will put it in people's hearts to fill positions. Now, sometimes they need some encouragement. Absolutely. I'm not, I'm not discounting that. I'm not saying we should never ask anybody to serve. If you're a leader in a ministry, ask people to serve in your ministry, for goodness sakes. Okay? But if you're not in a ministry, you need to be asking the Lord, Lord, where are you putting me? Where are you going to position me? How are you going to use me if I'm a believer? How am I going to be used by you? What ministry do you want me in? See, I believe that when we wait upon the Lord, it is He who places people in positions. And sometimes it'll come through somebody asking you to serve. But other times it might come through you going, you know what, I have a burden for this. This is just not right. I've got to be involved here. I've got to do this. There's kids that need to hear about Jesus, so I want to get involved in a children's ministry. Maybe Iwana, maybe uh, Cornerstone Kids, maybe CEF. I, I need to help kids know Jesus. And, and that burden comes up. And I would tell you that's happened in Cornerstone Kids. It's been amazing. By Shiloh and Lorraine's own mouth, they have said, we never, never, right, Greg? Never, six months ago even, would we have ever thought we would be doing this. But the Lord burdened their hearts, gave them a vision, and has put them in this place. And they've got vision for bigger things. But they want it to be the Lord directed. See, I believe that a lot of our filling of positions will take place as we wait on the Lord. And as He works in people's hearts. And people listen. (laughs) Did you hear me? People listen to him wherever he's leading them. So I would say these are products of waiting on the Lord. See, because the truth is waiting on Jesus is always, always productive. Power is released. Mission is revealed. Prayer becomes priority. And people are placed. So if waiting on Jesus is always productive, then here's our challenge. Church, let's hurry up and wait. Right? I'm serious. I know it's a funny little statement because it goes, it seems opposite, but the truth is if these things come from waiting on Christ, let's hurry up and wait. I want the power of the Holy Spirit at work in my life and in the life of this church. I want to know very clearly what God has called me to in Jefferson County. I want to know as pastor what he has called this church to in Jefferson County. I want to know these things. And I want to be involved in prayer over these things. Yes, I want to pray for people. But more than that, I want to pray that God's gospel would go forth in Jefferson County. And that's going to happen only in the power of the Holy Spirit as I wait upon the Lord in prayer. And then I want to see people serving the Lord. And not because I want you to serve the Lord because I want you to serve me. I want you to serve the Lord because there's an incredible joy that takes place when you serve Him. When you fulfill the things that He's created you for. There's nothing better than that. See, I want these things to happen. So let's hurry up and wait. So if you're in a waiting spell in your own personal life, Wait and rejoice in that waiting. 
Seek him in prayer. Look for his mission to become more and more revealed in your life and understand it more. And, and, and keep, keep looking for those doors to open then as they will. See, chapter 2 is coming. In chapter 2, the door is opened wide, but it only comes after this moment or this time of waiting in the lives of the disciples. So I'm saying, church, let's hurry up and wait. Let's pray.